Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 533-42 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text Hope NY in New York. All right, we're back. It's another Carolina podcast, continued quarantine edition. And guys, I'm really thankful that we're doing this because that's the only way that I can keep track of the weeks that are passing as we sit here in quarantine. Seems like there might be a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, but for now, we're still social distancing. Chris, as far as I know, you're at your house. Wes, as far as I know, you're at your house or y'all are somewhere where I am not. I'm still back here in the podcast studio making sure that we can actually record this thing and get it out to all you lovely people. So thank you all so much for listening and and for tuning in continuously throughout the quarantine. On the one hand, I know there's been sort of a a shortage of things to consume content-wise because there are no sports and things like that, so maybe it's a little bit easier. And hopefully y'all look forward to this as sort of a respite. But on the other hand, not, not like a ton of actual things to talk about. Normally we'd be talking about spring right now and, you know, some camps and things like that, and it hasn't been there. But we've still had a lot of fun talking about food, talking about the greatest Gamecock bracket, and today we actually have a podcast packed with news. So we'll jump right in, but I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to everybody that's listening to this because we really appreciate it, and it and it helps when you all rate and review and subscribe and, and listen and continue to support the podcast. So uh, thank you all so much. Hope quarantine has been going okay for you all, and hope everybody's staying safe. And for Wes and for Chris and myself, I know we've been trying to stay busy as much as possible. And like I said, the last week, we've actually had a lot of things that have been going on, namely with the South Carolina football team, Brian McClendon finally making his way out of Columbia on what seems like the 15th attempt. And that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration. But there had been rumors that Brian McClendon was going to leave for a couple different coaching jobs this offseason. He didn't do it. It seemed like the coaching staff was going to have made its last change. And then late last week, Brian McClendon decided to take 
a job at Oregon. He's going across the country, and now there is yet another assistant coaching vacancy at South Carolina. Uh, Wes, I, I keep joking that whatever assistant coach move has just been made is going to be the last one, and then I keep – I don't want to say being wrong because it's a joke because I'm kind of just expecting all the coaches to turn over at some point. Uh, but just walk me through, I guess, you finding out about and then Brian McClendon's process as he left South Carolina and made his way to Oregon. Yeah, you know, I think kind of kind of interesting timing on, on this one. Um, I, I'm with you. I, I think most of us thought everything was sort of settled, and and obviously, uh, you know, the sort of sports world has sort of been on hold except for recruiting, obviously. So, you know, I, I think uh, did come as a little bit of a surprise, but I, I think you look and um, all of a sudden last week you start to hear a couple of rumors about. Um, hey, so, you know, something might be up with, with Brian McClendon. Then you start to hear, well, he might be going to Oregon. And um, actually, that still, I guess, hasn't – we're recording this on Wednesday. hasn't been announced that I've seen by Oregon yet. But um, he has changed his Twitter heading to Oregon. And I think just um, a fresh start for him and too good of a situation for him to turn down. You know, we had been told, especially after Mike Bobo was hired, that that maybe solidified the chances of, of McClendon staying uh, just because of that prior relationship unless, like, a really good opportunity uh, came up. And uh, I think, um, you know, if the Steelers' job would have been offered to him, I think he probably would have taken it. He did turn down some other opportunities. We heard that the Rams actually offered him at, at one point, and he turned that down, didn't want to go to L.A. So, yeah, I, I think he was looking for – a fresh start, but not just any start. But I, I think you look at Oregon, um, a really good tradition of, of offense. Obviously, they recruit very well out there. I, I think he is a good fit for the Oregon staff. Mm-hmm. And um, other than just the the fact that it is um, on the completely other side of the country, which is kind of kind of weird for a guy that's been, you know, in, in the southeast, uh, really, I guess, his whole life and his whole coaching career for the most part. Um, that that part's a little bit weird, but I think as far as being like a young, uh, cool guy that that sort of um, connects well with players and um, an offensive-oriented program, it, it makes sense to where if you're Brian McClendon and they're offering you this job, um, I'd imagine he'll get a multi-year deal. That's uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I think it could be best for both sides where you sort of get a clean break. Yeah, it is kind of funny. I mean, obviously it's not unprecedented for coaches to move to different parts of the country, but when you have someone that has as strong a roots in, a, in one particular region and one particular conference, and you have a lot of recruiting ties and, and you know, with a lot of the high school coaches in the states in SEC country, not to mention you know a bunch of colleges in SEC country, and when you have those ties, it's kind of funny, but I guess if you're a good recruiter, you're going to be a good recruiter wherever. He's just going to have to go and, and basically start a lot of those relationships. I, I don't want to say like start over, but you know, kind of start from scratch in, in terms of getting to know some of the high school coaches out there, which is certainly going to be interesting. But, and I'll throw this back to you, Wes, I think this is still a scenario where if he had left for the Steelers job, Carolina fans would have accepted that because, okay, you you can't turn down a job in the NFL, especially with an organization like the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's certainly an upgrade. It's not as big of an upgrade, but still going from South Carolina to Oregon is an upgrade, and that does speak to Brian McClendon's prowess, again, as a recruiter, as a position coach, probably as someone that people still believe has a future as a coordinator, even if, his two years at South Carolina as OC were probably best described, uh, most politically described as up and down, inconsistent. There's still a lot of upside there, and that the Steelers were interested in him, and that Oregon has actually landed him, is a credit to McClendon. 
Yeah, it is. And I um, I think I said this on the podcast before. If if Mike Bobo had taken a job as, as OC somewhere other than South Carolina, I, I think there's a good chance that, that Mike Bobo would have tried to hire Brian McClendon onto his staff, uh, you know, elsewhere. So uh, it's not like just because the offense maybe didn't work out with, with Brian McClendon calling plays, that, that doesn't mean that he's not still – a highly regarded coach, at least as a you know an assistant and a wide receivers coach. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it happened to work out that that Bobo took a job where, you know, McClendon was already employed. Obviously, there, there's a little bit of a sense when a guy gets demoted that sometimes it's better just to have a clean break. And I, I think the fact that a Muschamp had some some loyalty to BMAC and, and likes BMAC as a coach and a person, he, he kept him on and kept him employed. But obviously felt like he had to strip him of the play calling uh, duties and get a fresh start there, but still wanted him, you know, here as a coach. But I, I think even when that happens, anybody is probably going to look to to see, is there a situation to just start, sort of start over? You know, I always look at coaching, especially these days, as much pressure as there is to win. It, it's almost like when you take a new job, you sort of restart your clock a little bit. You uh, get a little bit of a honeymoon phase again mm-hmm. and uh, you get to restart a, a, a contract situation. I, I don't know what that's going to end up being. I, I'd imagine if if not for all the COVID nineteen stuff, he probably would have been looking at a two or three year deal potentially with Oregon. I, I don't know how much all this stuff affects new coaches' contracts because you're going to have to be a bit more conservative, I would think, on the school level. But uh, that, that's another discussion. I I think it's just a situation where, yeah, I mean, the, the guy is is in his mid thirties. I, I mean, uh, he's he's for, for a coach, um, coach-wise, he's still very, very young um, and still has, um, I think, a, a tremendous upside as a coach and as an assistant. So I think um, that, por- that part is important to remember. This, this guy was a, had worked his way up, um, you know, actually was an interim coach, an interim head coach at Georgia when, uh, when Mark Rick was let go. So he, he had a very, very fast rise. So it's not like this is a guy has been coaching forever. Um, so I think still a, a highly thought of assistant coach in Brian McClendon, just maybe um, not quite ready to, to be the primary play caller yet, as we saw. Uh, and, and Chris, I will ask you sort of where you're hearing South Carolina will go uh, in, in terms of another direction, whether it's replacing, uh, I mean, I guess it's not replacing a wide receiver coach, and we can get into sort of the staff changes as things are shuffling and, and where Carolina may be leaning in terms of replacing that role uh, as an assistant coach. But first, I, I just want to get your thoughts on what it means to have a staff change this late in the game. Obviously, normally that doesn't happen because it's on the other side of spring practice and you're getting into summer workouts and you're doing camps and things like that and everything's kind of settled in the season. Right now with no one having spring practice or you know more than a couple, everything's different. I mean, it's the COVID-19 shutdown, so everything is, is different. So it, 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 I think the the timing of it is is strange because of what we're accustomed to, but given that there's so much up in the air with the upcoming football season, it's a little bit less strange. But what does that mean for South Carolina? I mean, does this project less stability? Does this unsettle the locker room? What does this mean for the other coaches that are on staff? I, I mean, is this is this a big deal internally for South Carolina? You know, I, I think the first way to answer that is <clears throat> it depends on what your plan is to sort of, you know, shift things around who you're going to bring in. And, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, in, in a couple minutes. But I think it does depend on that. But just if you take that part away from it, um, 
you know, I do think the unique nature of this time, you could argue, even helps a little bit in terms of not making things unsettled. I mean, it's not like, you know, this point in the calendar, South Carolina would have been finished with spring practice, even if we had spring practice. But I think you could say, look, if you go through an entire spring with your position coach, your receivers coach, who's also involved in special teams, and then he leaves, then you're, you know, not starting from square one, but then you're bringing in a totally new guy, you know, in the summer. And then once you actually open practice back up in the preseason, it's a totally new guy. You know, presumably, you know, all things being equal and ideally, if things can open back up for practice, you would think that the SEC, NCAA, whoever is going to make some kind of effort to be able to let schools, hey, take a few extra practices. Now, we don't know what any of that's going to look like. There's a lot of questions with that. But if so, if that scenario happens, South Carolina, maybe you get some extra practices, et cetera. And so then you're bringing in a new guy. It's just sort of a fresh start. The players, they're, they're not meeting. You know, they're, they're meeting virtually, you know, and those things are still happening. But I think this is an okay time to, to have this change. And would this change have even happened without this stuff? I don't, I don't know. You could say it might not have. <laughs> so maybe Brian McClendon's still on staff, if not for all this shutdown. But um, I, I don't think it's a, it's a thing that's going to be a huge deal because it's not like a guy, say, leaving in the middle of the season, you know, which you don't, you don't typically see unless it's somebody, you know, getting fired you know, an offensive coordinator or something getting fired in the middle of the season or, you know, defensive coordinator or something like that. You've seen that every now and then. Um, but I think it's a different situation. And with nobody being around each other physically right now and with not as much going on, even recruiting taking place virtually, I think it's an okay time to go ahead and plug in somebody um, to reshuffle the staff, and they have some good options for that. What are those options? We heard some talk about Des Kitchings maybe as the running back coach when South Carolina, I guess before they brought in Joe Cox, when it first seemed like Brian McClendon was going to leave. That's a, a name that I've heard, but only because South Carolina had already talked to him. And, and your, to your point about it being late in the game, it, it's not a bad time because, like you said, everything's up in the air and they haven't had spring practice and, and, and things like that. But for the most part, like most staffs are kind of settled right now. So, like, one, is Des Kitchings' name coming up because South Carolina wants him and because they already talked to him? Or is it because there aren't a lot of other other options because the coaching carousel has pretty much stopped spinning at this point? Well, I think – so to loop that all in sort of one answer, I'll do my best to do that. So I think you have good options if you're South Carolina because – for a few reasons. Number one – you did interview Des Kitchings in the offseason, and he was a very attractive candidate. If South Carolina had, say, had two staff openings, he would have been a guy. You know, as it turned out, they only had one because Brian McClendon did not get the Steelers job. And what Muschamp decided to do was to, you know, you remember, Will Muschamp was going to put himself sort of as the main linebackers coach after Coleman Hutzer left. So what he decided to do was plug Rod Wilson in there, you know, another good hire, I think, for South Carolina. Plug Rod Wilson in and then McClendon stays on staff, and then he just shuffles some things from there with Bobby Bentley, the running backs coach, for example, who's already on staff. Well, now that you do have another departure, you've got Kitching still out there, still available. Um, he's a guy that they kept in contact with. He's a guy that they liked a lot. He's a Palmetto State native. Um, he's got 16 years of experience. He's recruited well to non-logo school, NC State. You know, Vanderbilt, for example, had some good backs there. Um, and, and he's a guy that's re- well-regarded as a recruiter and as a coach. So you've got him still out there where you can just plug him in. The other reason that you know, you've got some good options is now you can pretty easily shuffle your staff. 
Um, you know, now the product on the field will determine whether or not these moves are were good, but they make a lot of sense because now you can just shift Bobby Bentley right back to tight ends coach, position he coached last year. You know, you help bring in Nick Muse, um, and, and he'll be back for a senior season. He was instrumental in, in landing Eric Shaw and Jaheim Bell, a couple talented tight end prospects who will be coming in to South Carolina this summer or whenever they enroll. Um, and so you can just move him back there. And then Joe Cox, although he's a younger coach, he's mostly coached tight ends during his career. He did coach receivers for Mike Bobo last year at Colorado State. So he's worked with Mike Bobo. He knows what Bobo is going to be looking for at the receiver position. So you can make those two moves already on your staff. You can bring in Kitchings and then have your staff filled out in a way that makes sense and a way that you're comfortable with. Is that the best scenario? Because when we talked about some of the potential staff changes, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, whenever it was, and I said, hey, what about Joe Cox? You know, he coached wide receivers at Colorado State, and y'all were like, yeah, but – or, uh, yeah, yeah, he coached wide receivers at Colorado State, right? And and, and came over to coach tight ends was, was the deal. Yeah. And then it was like, well, yeah, but tight ends, like he doesn't have to do as much, uh, you know, essentially. It's, it's a slightly less important position group, and he only did one year of wide receiver coach, so it's probably better for him to be at tight ends. So is this just about Kitchings being that good of an option at running back coach, or, or do y'all believe that Joe Cox is that versatile and, and the one year of experience under Bobo coaching his wide receivers is going to make that much of a difference? You know, I, I do think it is a question, right, because he, he has that one year of experience. That is something we did. I, I do remember those conversations we had about it. Of, you know, hey, do you – who do you move to receivers coach under all these different scenarios then? Remember that was when there was one staff opening and then there was, you know, possibility of adding a linebackers coach or adding a running backs coach. You weren't exactly sure at that time how it would go. And so, you know, moving Cox to receivers then it it, it would have made some sense if McClendon departed, you know, at that time too. Uh but I think you what ended up happening is a lot of people thought, hey, do you shift you know, when Brian McClendon stayed, do you shift him to running backs, you know, and then say move Joe Cox to receivers? And, well, McClendon had coached receivers at South Carolina and recruited, you know, the guys in that room since he's been at South Carolina. And so for continuity reasons, th- that made sense too, you know, and that's why you don't make the move then. So I do think, you know, is Joe Cox the most experienced guy you could go hire? No, but, you know, you brought him on. Mike Bobo thinks the world of the guy. Um, he's – a lot of folks we've talked to think Cox thinks Cox has a has a really bright future. You know, he knows what Bobo wants in that position. He's seen a lot of talented guys and coached some talented guys at the position. The other part of it, Pearson, is, you know, you've got your staff in place right now that you're going to shuffle, and you have one opening. So unless you just almost for no reason just start letting some guys go to create more room, then you have to look at, okay, what's the best possible configuration of the one guy I can bring in plus the guys I've got on staff. And so for South Carolina, they could go, you know, interview some receivers, coaches, for example. Um, But, you know, Will Muschamp likes those kitchens a lot. He's a guy that I think if there would have been another two staff openings at the time, would have hired at that time. But Brian McClendon did not take the job then. Now he has. So really nothing's changed in that regard. It's just, you know, Brian McClendon leaves and you're, you're bringing in another guy because you've got that additional staff opening. So, I think it's really about finding the best guy you can add to the staff, finding where he fits best, and then moving around your other piece. And so, so fortunately for them, Bobby Bentley has been in that tight ends room, and he's coached those guys. And Joe Cox does have, you know, wide receiver experience, and he knows Mike Bobo's offense very well because he played in it at Georgia 
and he's coached in it, whether, you know, he was a grad assistant at Colorado State, and then he moved up. So he's quite familiar with the offense and, and what Bobo's going to be looking uh, forward, looking to there. Wes, is this the last staff change? I I think I think so. <laughs> we <laughs> um, say that every time. Um, I mean, got got to be right. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I shouldn't say that. Who, dude? You never you never know these days, right? Um, I mean, I, I didn't think a couple months ago that we'd be sitting here doing the podcast with me in the room over my garage. So. Um, who knows? But, but yeah, I, I think so, man. I, I mean, I think there was all. I think we knew if there was going to be another change, that it would probably, you know, involve Brian McClendon. Now, if uh, you know, you sort of looked at the various, uh, like you said, the the coaching cycle, um, the carousel, it, it seemed to have stopped moving. So it didn't really seem like there were any great fits still out there to potentially look at Brian McClendon taking another job, which is why I think we thought it was sort of over. But, um, yeah, I, I I think so. But, I mean, who who could really say at this point? <laughs> Shifting gears a little bit, I guess that's – I mean, I guess that's bad news for South Carolina. You're losing a, pro, a young, promising offensive mind and an established recruiter and an established quality assistant in the SEC. So it's never good news to lose a guy like that, although it was – not a huge surprise. Maybe the timing surprised some people, but that he left, uh, not hugely surprising. But we'll we'll follow it up with a little bit of good news here. South Carolina got a big commitment from linebacker prospect Bryce Steele. We talked about him a little bit last week. And, Wes, you got the opportunity to sit down with him for one of your quarantine conversations, which is one of my favorite miniseries that we have going on the Gamecock Central Podcast Network right now. For those of you that haven't listened to it, I would highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, Wes, give me the skinny on what went down with Bryce Steele and and sort of how his decision ended up being South Carolina. Yeah, really enjoyed talking to Bryce, man. You can just tell he's he's a he's a good kid and good head on his shoulders. And I I think the type of person that you want to sort of build your your foundation, you know, uh, with, with guys like this. I you know I talked to Bryce. It, it was interesting. So uh, and, and those who don't you know, deal with kids on a day-to-day basis may not get why this was such a big deal to me. But um, I know Chris certainly will understand this, that, you know, we originally were supposed to talk at a certain time and um, he was going to be delayed for like 15 minutes. And just the fact that Bryce still realizing in the middle of the day, the day we were about to record that he was going to have to be late and reaching back out to me and apologizing and being like, Hey, is it okay if we push it back to seven fifteen instead of seven? I've got something else I forgot I had to do. Um, just little things like that are, are rare with with high school students. I've, I've learned so um, just a, a a good overall kid, very um, you know very well spoken, very um, I would say mature for his age, and you know that, that's all just the off the field stuff. I think you turn on the film. Um, was not able to play his junior year, which I think has really affected um, his recruitment a, a great deal as far as some schools backing off of him, Penn State, Ohio State, um, or two schools I believe would have been big factors. Otherwise, they offered him early on. But uh, South Carolina stuck with him, North Carolina stuck with him, and, and that really paid off. And another commitment for Kyle Krantz, who now has two guys in a row after getting Nick Barrett a few weeks back. That's uh, a nice win for him. I say in North Carolina, the kid's originally from Raleigh, North Carolina. He's going to school in Virginia right now. But 
Yeah, I, I really think this this is a fit for South Carolina on the field, off the field. Um, you know, so, some kids, you maybe say, all right, there's upside here, but there's a lot of risk. I, I look at Bryce Still, and, uh, it, you know, as long as he's 100% healthy, which the word is that he is, um, I, I think this is a, a guy that you just look at and you say there's very little downside of this pickup, um, lots of upside, and, He's probably someone that's going to help your program one way or the other, has an athleticism for that position, has started to put on some good weight. He's up to about 6'1", 205, or 210. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I just like everything about this pickup. The fact that he missed a year maybe explains, like you said, part of the not, – not, I don't want to say lack of interest, but the fact that he doesn't have the biggest offer list and, and maybe why he will end up being sort of a diamond in the rough in this class. But Boston College, Duke – East Carolina, Florida International, are the other ones listed right here on his rivals well, page. Well, I mean, you got um, if you expand it out. Uh, I mean, he did have a pretty nice offer list when you look at uh, deciding among South Carolina, North Carolina, Texas, mm-hmm. um, Penn State, and Ohio State did um, offer him early on, I believe. Uh, so, I, I mean, uh, you look at, if you expand the offer list on there, he he actually had a decent offer list early on. And then some of those schools stuck with them, some of them didn't. And uh, that, I think, allowed South Carolina and North Carolina to sort of stay in there with them. And uh, Texas, actually, interestingly enough, got involved late because Coleman Hutzler leaves South Carolina and, you know, and, and then goes to Texas. That was the connection there. But I, I think, um, obviously, that says a little bit about, uh, you know, what Hutzler and the Texas staff thought about him is that once uh, Hutzler brought him to the Texas uh, other staffers, they said, okay, this guy fits what we want to do as well. I, I think from from just a ability standpoint, you, you turn on the film, you watch him run around, you watch him, he's playing in coverage, he's playing in the box, um, he's uh, staying with the slot receivers down the field on wheel routes. I, I mean, there's really, I, I think Bryce still checks all the boxes if you're looking at, at linebackers. And I think if he plays his senior year the way he's expected to, uh, I'm talking to some of the rivals guys and guys that have seen him in person. Then um, I think by the time this this senior class signs, he, he's probably going to be a four star guy. How does Carolina keep getting these guys? Again, I don't know what the status was of Ohio State and Penn State in terms of offering him and staying with him, but Carolina just went four and eight, and Jordan Birch didn't mind, and Boogie Huntley and all the guys that hung on as they finished off the class of 2020 didn't mind, and. I mean, look, it's not like this is a five-star guy, but you mentioned a guy with a lot of upside. And it's not even like a local kid that South Carolina has like an advantage in terms of getting an early look at him because he's right in their backyard from you know Alexandria, Virginia, like right in the middle of the state. So there are other schools that are going to get a better look at him that are going to have you know more connections, frankly. I don't know how many guys South Carolina gets from Virginia. I'm sure it's a couple, but not an outrageous amount. But how do they continue to win these recruiting battles? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, first of all, the, the fact that – and he is from Raleigh, so so he's a little bit closer, you know, than, than his profile would, uh, you know, would demonstrate there. So uh, South Carolina does have pretty good ties in North Carolina. I think Kyle Krantz, again, to give him some credit, has done a good job trying to establish relationships in the state of North Carolina. You know, and I, I think just the fact that South Carolina stuck with him and part of their message to him was, was hey, we, we want you. We want you to commit whenever you're ready to commit. Um, there is no deadline on this offer. We, you know, we want you all the way from from when the offer went out to, to national signing day. Whenever you're ready, we're ready. 
And uh, I think that that stuck with him. That message stuck with him. And I, I think the fact that he sees an opportunity for playing time at South Carolina, he mentioned that as being a big factor as well. So I, I think, you know, re- recruiting is obviously not a science. And there are certain things that are important to some kids that are, are not important to others. And I, I think for Bryce still um, being comfortable with a coaching staff was a big factor. Feeling like a coaching staff was honest was a big factor. And, um, you know, like I said, his, his family is still in Raleigh. So uh, that's a pretty easy drive for them to come watch him play. And then you add that to the depth chart, uh, which he looked at and saw that there was probably a, a chance for him to come in and at least play, probably not start, but uh, be a, a guy who contributes at linebacker. I think you add all those things together. And uh, that, that's that's what landed him at South Carolina was sort of that intersection of he's being recruited as hard by South Carolina as he is by anybody else, and then the fact that he can play and, and just has a fit within this program. Even though there's no football being played, no spring practice, no workouts, anything like that, South Carolina still diligent on the path, have Colton Gothier, Bryce Steele, Nick Barrett, Sam Reynolds, Marcellus Dial, all committed right now for the class of 2021. And there's something that I, I really appreciate about the fact that you have a quarterback you have a wide receiver, you have a linebacker, you have a defensive tackle, you have a DB. I appreciate the distribution and the variety there. For some reason, that just kind of satisfies my uh, my OCD. But uh, that about does it for all the news and notes from the last week. Again, particularly eventful with a, an assistant coach leaving and another big commitment for South Carolina. Um, and obviously, we're a long way away from these guys signing, so we will keep you posted. I, this wasn't in the rundown, but I, I guess I'll just ask randomly kind of for you guys. Uh, Chris, one of the big news items out of college football yesterday was Clemson's top commit, I think by some uh, rankings, the number three overall recruit in the country, decommitting from Clemson. What do you know about that? Yeah, so Pearson, Clemson, they're, they're recruiting. Obviously, they've done a really good job with it because, you know, the, the product on the field shows, but they've been able to go a little bit more nationally because of that. And, um, you know, they, they've dipped into California even a little bit. Last class, they got DJ Uyangalule. Hopefully I said that correctly. Uh, they've got his teammate, Bo Collins, in this class. And Corey Foreman um, out there is, is another guy. That's, I think he's the number one player in the country, according to Rivals.com, if I'm not mistaken, and made an early commitment to Clemson as well. And so, um, you know, they recruit a little bit different than, you know, you see a lot of schools in the SEC. It's just sort of it's always open season and, you know, guys commit somewhere early and go and visit. And um, they don't tend to have many decommitments at all. Um, it's been quite a while. Paul Strelo at TigerIllustrated.com had a really good piece on that yesterday, sort of breaking it down as to, you know, some of the movements and the, the last guy that they had straight up decommit. I mean, several classes ago, I think. Um, and really they have a policy, and this is what it's tied to, Pearson. They have a policy where if you commit, really you're not supposed to go take other visits. Um, I think they actually had a, a recruit recently that did it sort of on the low, and it never really got <laughs> talked about. But um, that's sort of the policy. Um, and so Foreman, you know, he made an early commitment. He's got Southern Cal and a bunch of other programs still recruiting him. And he's got some ties some to Southern Cal and some other schools and really just wanted to keep looking around. And so, you know, that was sort of the deal. And just having conversations with the staff decided to go ahead and, and decommit so that he could open up the process, go take some other visits. So basically the check bounced? No, I just he just wanted to go take some other visits. Come on, are you serious? 
You're going to make me insert crickets there? Y'all are the worst. All right, fine. No, we're not, that we're... would be funny if you inserted crickets. Huh? Yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to do it. So we're, we're done talking about Should. this. I, I got nowhere. No, I mean, that was that was actually very helpful and informative, and uh, I appreciate that, and other people do as well, I'm sure, except I, I don't appreciate you right now, Chris. So this next question is going to Wes. Um, since we're in talking season, since there's no football going on except for a little bit of recruiting here and there, let's do some talking. ESPN's FPI put out win probabilities for South Carolina's entire schedule and uh, also made sure that everybody knows that South Carolina, again, has the toughest schedule in the country, which South Carolina fans are all ecstatic about. And right now, ESPN's FBI says that with the hardest schedule in the country, South Carolina will probably go 6-6. Six and six. There are six games that they have at least a 50% chance to win. You have all the easy wins. You have Coastal and you have Wofford and you have East Carolina, all with a 70-plus percent win probability. Same with Vanderbilt. Same with Missouri, and then the one game that South Carolina is favored to win, I think only by like 56%, again, right now on in April, middle of April, is the Tennessee game, which obviously is going to be at home for South Carolina this year. Wes, I will ask you first, does 6-6 six and six feel like a correct assumption for where this team will finish this year? I mean, it, it feels correct in that, yes, yeah, if, if you look at what we know now, I, I mean, I, I think – those uh that's that's by fpi you said yeah the football power index isn't that what it stands for something like that yeah it does i mean those those are largely i believe based on um you know information obviously for from this past season and then i think as the year goes on and you insert more data um, it, it sort of updates but i mean based on what we saw last year i i think that's probably fair i think that's probably about what you would expect. Um, you know, I think we all know there's a handful of games in there that statistically and uh, at least from a po- probability standpoint, South Carolina probably is not going to be given much of a chance to win. Then there's a, a few games uh, that South Carolina statistically will be given a, a great chance of winning. And then, as always, I, I think South Carolina seasons come down to do they take care of business against the teams in the league that are uh, similar to them. I, I think you look at, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, um, you know, you, you pretty much always have to get a win over Vanderbilt if you're going to have a good year at South Carolina. Um, you know, do you beat Missouri, stuff like that? Um, and, and then, obviously, can you add in a, an upset win along the way? But, but yeah, I, I think on paper, certainly that, that makes sense. I, I don't know what six they have them winning and what six they have them losing, but um, – I'd imagine that sort of just has them splitting those kind of what I call 50-50 games. Um, they've probably got a little more detail on it than that. But, uh, but yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, what's interesting about it, and I'll get your take on this, Chris, now, the six games that South Carolina would be winning in that scenario, again, the six that they're favored to win, Coastal, uh, East Carolina, Wofford, Vanderbilt, Missouri, Tennessee, which means losing to Clemson. Can't fault them for that. Losing on the road in Baton Rouge, can't really fault them for that. They have to go to Florida this year, and they're probably the favorites right now to win the SEC East, so can't really fault them for that. You have Texas A&M at home, and then the the one that really stands out, uh, well, I guess there's two more now. I'm forgetting one of them. and I, I, They have Texas A&M at home, and, and that's one that it's like, yeah, they, they probably need to beat. Or, yeah, they Kentucky. Have, yeah, yeah, Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky and Texas A&M, those are the last two. So, Kentucky, they only have a 37% chance to win that game again right now in the middle of April, according to ESPN's FPI, and Texas A&M is at home. That's Did you mention one... Georgia? 
Oh, yeah, and Georgia. That was the other one. Um, yeah, and uh, Georgia, of course, you know, that, that's going to be one that South Carolina is not going to be favored to win, at least at this point in the season. But would that be enough for, I guess, Gamecock fans, for the coaching staff, to be satisfied with the season? Again, given that it is the hardest schedule in the country, and you do have to go to Baton Rouge, and you have to play Florida, and you have to play Georgia, and you have to play Clemson. Um, but is 6-6 six and six, with those being the six wins and the six losses be good enough? Well, hey, real quick, Pearson, um, give us – I know you just said it, but give us the percentages on Tennessee, Kentucky, and Missouri. All right. Uh, Tennessee, South Carolina has a 56% chance to win. Kentucky, South Carolina has a 37% chance to win. And what was the other one? Missouri? Uh, Missouri. Missouri yeah. is a 71% chance to win. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said the same thing. Um, I know they just fired their coach and, and they're breaking in uh, Eli Drinkwitz now, but I mean, <laughs> as ugly as that game was last year for South Carolina, I don't think you can put that one in the 70% category, at least not for me. Do, do all, I mean, do all three of those numbers not surprise y'all? I mean, I, I'm, I'm surprised they're that high on South Carolina to beat Missouri. I'm surprised they're that high on Kentucky to beat South Carolina. And I'm actually surprised that South Carolina is slightly favored over Tennessee, although that game is in Columbia, so so that helps. But I'm I'm honestly surprised by, by all three of those. And I but I think those are the three games that sort of if you sort of split the difference on on the other one, South Carolina beats the teams they're supposed to, they lose the teams they're supposed to. I I think those are the ones that are the difference in like, you know, five and seven and really, you know, the fan base being ticked off or, or seven and five, which I, I think um you know, gives the, the staff a little bit of something to build off of and what is, as you said, again, one of the toughest schedules in the country. Uh, Chris, I'll, I'll let you weigh in, man, on the six and six, but I think in, in some ways six and six is like not not the best scenario because then your your fan base is completely split, whereas if, if Carolina has a, a an uptick and a really good year, then everybody's on board. If they have another four and eight year, then everybody is uh, – Obviously not on board, so six and six just leads to to more disagreeing within the fan base. I think. Yeah, six and six is a scenario, and we've even joked about this a little bit in terms of if that's what happened, that's like the most difficult scenario to project what happens. And so, of course, that's the FPI that gets spit out here to try to have us determine what direction things may go. And it's hard to tell. I mean, six and six would get you to a bowl, so then it becomes okay. You made a bowl, which is. We've all we've all sort of agreed that's the benchmark they have to get to. It would seem like, and this is if the season's normal. You know, if they can get to a bowl, you feel like things will probably continue. But then, what if you go lose the bowl? You know, or what if you look terrible in the bowl? Now, if you go win it, then you're seven and six. You know, um, I think getting to seven wins is really important, whether it's in the regular season or whether it's in the bowl. Um, but I do think they need to make a bowl. Six and six, I mean, man, it's almost a toss-up. And, look, the Tennessee game, according to the FBI, FBI, that's almost more of a toss-up, which I would agree with. The Kentucky game, I'm not surprised Kentucky's favored. I thought it might be a little bit closer to a toss-up, but Mm -hmm. I sort of understand that. The Missouri one, I think that's a little bit rich in terms of South Carolina's chances there, although, you know, I'd be fine with favoring South Carolina, but probably not by that much. But I think Wes made a great point. You look at those first six games, the first half of the season, South Carolina has got to make some hay in that first part of the season. 
they really, guys, I, I think they need to come out of there five and one. And that's going to be really hard. You know, whether you do something like if you can go score an upset against Ford on the road and then drop another one or whatever it may be, any combination, you need to go three and oh the first three weeks. And then you need to find a way to pick up two more because the second half of the schedule, you know, you've got Vandy and you've got Wofford. Okay. So that's a couple games I think you can win. But then it's Georgia, it's at LSU, it's at Clemson, and then you got A and M that, you know, maybe another swing game. What do they have on A and M, Pearson, in terms of Um, I don't know. I don't uh, actually have it in front of me. I was just doing that off the top of my head from looking at it yesterday. Okay. Well, that's impressive you remembered the percentages for those <laughs> those just stood out for some reason. <laughs> That's that's almost insane, but uh, you know what? Do you recall then if A and M was close in terms of no, you know, not, not particularly. A&M? I think it was in the yeah. I think it was in like the like high well like high thirties, like similar to similar to Kentucky. I think yeah. I, I'll look it up while yeah. you're talking. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that is a game. I don't know. It's almost a little bit silly to say, well, South Carolina and beaten them yet because so they shouldn't be favored. You know, every season, every team stands on its own, but. Um, that's one that they, I'm sure they'd love to get that one off their back, and they do get them at home. You know, can they can they beat A and M? But I think, you know, I said the first six games, maybe the first seven. If you can come out of those first seven, you know, with five with five or even six wins, then you're in business to have to get things back on track because the second half of the season's got your you know, more difficult games in terms of a road game at LSU and a road game at Clemson mm-hmm. and um, th- those and the Georgia game. I mean, those are, you know, arguably your three most difficult. And you throw Florida probably in that mix as well in the first half of the season. Right. Uh, all right. So I, I looked it up. Texas A&M is 34.3% chance for South Carolina to win. And just to give you an idea, they have four games that they have a less than 20% chance to win right now. That's Florida, 13.4%. Uh, Georgia is 14.8%, LSU is 8%, and Clemson is 3%. Uh, Wes, let me let me come back to you for this one. This is maybe maybe the strangest number in this entire set of numbers. <laughs> South Carolina has a better chance. Again, according to ESPN's FBI, South Carolina has a better chance to lose to Wofford than to beat Clemson. Their chance to beat Clemson is three percent. Their chance to beat Wofford is ninety-six and a half percent. Does that feel right to you? That kind of feels right to me, which is really sad. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the numbers here, I guess Clemson um, has the best uh, FPI in the country. Um, they're number one. It, it looks like if I'm reading this right, and um, South Carolina obviously. I don't know what their number is, but it's well back from that uh, 39th. So, and it's at Clemson. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, just the, with it being at Clemson, that's that's very very tough to, to go win in that place, as we've seen. Uh, you know, unfortunately for South Carolina, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not surprised that that the number is that low. Uh, you, you look at, I mean, LSU. They only give South Carolina an eight percent chance to win. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it's nobody wants to hear that, but. But yeah, it, it's probably on point, Chris. That's that's gross. That's not great when you have a better chance to lose to to a FCS team to an FCS team than to beat your rival. Yeah, I mean it, it's. I think it speaks to a couple things. Number one, you you get that road factor. You know, you know, even though one of them's at home with the Wofford games, also at home for South Carolina. 
you think that increases the chances even more. And that's a really good percentage chance to win. But I think it just speaks to the quality and what the FBI thinks of Clemson as a team, no matter where they're playing, playing home, away, on neutral site, whatever it may be. But you factor in that it's on the road and how strong Clemson is as a program, as a team right now, what they return on the roster, especially offensively. I think there are a lot of reasons to really like their chances in that game. That is pretty darn high, but I, but I can't say I'm shocked. I really can't. All right, we're going to dive just, I mean, not not that we haven't already dived, dove, not that we're already <laughs> all in to just talking season absolute nonsense, but we're going to go even further down the rabbit hole because it's just fun. So I'm going to say, Chris, I'm giving South Carolina the six wins that they're projected to have right now according to the FPI. That's Coastal, that's Eastern Carolina, that's Missouri, that's Tennessee, that's Vanderbilt, and that's Wofford. And yeah. now I'm going to tell you that they're going to steal one of the six games that they're supposed to lose. They're going to steal one of at Kentucky, at Florida, Texas A&M, Georgia, at LSU, or at Clemson. What one game are you giving South Carolina to make them a 7-5 and five that would make the fan base the most happy uh, I would give them A and M. It's a home game, um, and I think it's the game that would be most winnable out of all those. You know, you you, you just look over it. It's hard to say. Yeah, I favor South Carolina against Florida. I favor South Carolina against LSU or Clemson. You can't do that. It eliminates all those for me, right? And then you go to, um, you know, Kentucky, A and M, and Georgia, um, and, and I look at. One of those games is on the road against Kentucky, who I still think has a chance to be a good team this year. Um, so I sort of just put that one on the back burner, and then I look at okay, the two home games. You know, Georgia, I, I don't think I would, I would think is a more difficult game than even that road game against Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So then it's really you know okay, road game against Kentucky or home game against A and M, and I think you take the A and M game in that case for me. That's interesting. That wasn't where I thought you were going to go with that, but I like how you're thinking about that. Uh, Wes, what's your answer? Um, so I, get, I can give them any W? Yeah, you can give them any W of the six presumed losses, Kentucky, Florida, A&M, Georgia, LSU, Clemson. Oh, I'm going Clemson all the way. Yeah, okay. Um, Man of I the mean, people. it would be such a big, such a big national – win it would such be such a big local win i mean just um for, for every I, I don't know i I'd, I'd have to go clemson to be on the road it would disrupt their season obviously it would give south carolina something they haven't done in a long time uh, yeah it'd be clemson all the way for me if we ran a poll right now oh yeah go ahead so i messed up i totally botched my answer because i, I thought you meant which one is more likely Oh no 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 no! Don't sorry. Well, that. no, I I, I I liked where you were going with that because I said, "Well, make the fans happiest," and you gave them another home win, another opportunity to watch a win at Williams Bryce, and and I hadn't thought about it yeah. like that, but that's probably a good way to think about it. And they've never beaten Texas A and M, so people would be ecstatic about that. No, it's still not. Clemson would still be the correct answer. Really? Okay. All right. Well, yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I'm going to push <laughs> yeah. back on both of you. I, I was going to say I'm going to disagree with West philosophically inside a little bit more with Chris. And if, look, if I ran a Twitter poll right now, if y'all all ran Twitter polls right now, if we ran something on GamecockCentral.com, it'd be like 80% Clemson and then some other votes for other things. But I think the correct answer is Kentucky. Because of what both of you mentioned, 
as we talked about the schedule, the games that South Carolina needs to win. Look, Carolina just beat Georgia in what was statistically the biggest upset in the history of South Carolina football. A hundred plus years of mediocre football. That was the biggest upset ever. And what did it mean for the season? Nothing. Like maybe it was the difference in Will Muschamp's job being saved and not. But Carolina was four and eight and they lost to App State and they embarrassed themselves offensively towards the end of the season. It meant nothing that they beat Georgia, other than that was really cool and it's a great memory and people will always have it. But in terms of the status of the program, South Carolina did not get any better beating Georgia. And I would make the same argument for beating Clemson next year. Yes, it would be exciting. It would be fun. The national storylines, the local storylines, the fact that South Carolina's lost six in a row to Clemson. Is it six? Yeah, six in a row now to Clemson. Carolina fans would be ecstatic. And they would be right to be ecstatic, and it's always fun to beat your rival, and it would probably be the only game that Clemson would lose, and it might keep him out of national championship hunt and all those things. But in terms of like continuing to make progress, to get Carolina back on track, I feel like the Kentucky game is more significant because you don't need to be beating Florida regularly now. You don't need to be beating Georgia. You don't need to be beating Clemson. I- I'm going to go back to, to, frankly, what Will Muschamp says about you know win the East, win the state, and win the East is first. And South Carolina needs to prove right now that it's at least as good as Kentucky because they're not right now. And that they're as good as Missouri, which, I mean, that's a toss-up. Missouri won that one last year, so you can't really make a great argument that South Carolina's in a better position than, than Missouri right now other than they have a coach. Missouri's breaking in a coach. South Carolina's one mediocre year away from breaking in their own new head coach. You already have the Tennessee win. If Carolina goes, if Carolina beats in their division, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt, and you lose to Georgia and you lose to Florida, that's a respectable season and, to me, would say more about the progress of the program than beating Clemson, which would almost certainly be a fluke. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Clemson is ahead of South Carolina right now, so if Carolina goes and wins that game, it's not an indictment. Okay, you know, South Carolina's past Clemson. And, even you know, even if they go and win those four, you know, divisional games that you mentioned, doesn't necessarily mean, okay, they're head and shoulders better than Tennessee now. But but what it does show in that Tennessee game, Wes has made this point and can expand on it. I'll go ahead and steal his point. He may he may be getting ready to make is that Tennessee is really an important game this year because you've got two teams who are yeah Tennessee's historically better, but they've been floundering in the past few years, and you don't want them to get a foothold on the field and the rivalry on the recruiting trail. You need to go win that game and shut that out, and not let them take that next step to okay, let's go catch Georgia, Florida now. South Carolina needs to get get back some, to some stability in the division, and they need to go get back to where they can compete more with these top teams. Not, you know, they don't need to be okay. Let's compete with Missouri. You know, no, you, you need to be working towards that top. But so you got to go take care of business against those other teams first. Mm-hmm. All right, Wes, make that point again. <laughs> no, I mean. Uh, it's an excellent point because it's my point. But <laughs> no, I. Uh, but I think I'll go back to something you said earlier, Pearson. The Georgia win didn't mean as much because South Carolina didn't really capitalize on it. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they couldn't, if they beat Clemson, then actually capitalize on that. Like just because it played out that way this past year doesn't mean that a win over Clemson wouldn't be massive. I I mean, South Carolina beat Kentucky this past year. So if your point is that they beat Kentucky um, and that's a huge win for them, 
um, you can make your you can make your argument against you because they they beat Kentucky this past season and it didn't mean anything. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I think beating yeah beating Georgia any other time, especially I mean I think we look back. I look at the the basically the fourth quarter against Florida where South Carolina was in an excellent position going into the second half of that game to beat a top ten team two weeks in a row for the mm. first time in school history and just couldn't make the plays late and, and really fell apart. And then you saw the season crash from, from that point forward. And I, I think spent way too much time, energy, and effort focusing on what could have been against Florida and uh, then got beat by Tennessee the very next week as far as not really moving on mentally to that game. So I, I think, yeah, it, it played out that way, but that doesn't mean that beating Georgia wasn't massive at the time doesn't mean it couldn't have been a springboard. And I think if, if South Carolina is sitting right in between, you know, being sort of a 6-16 a six and six team this year, finishes the regular season with a win over Clemson, and then can use that to springboard into the bowl game and, and land a few extra recruits late, I, I think that's the type of thing that can change the trajectory of a program that you can build off of. The, the issue is South Carolina just couldn't build off of that win over Georgia this year. And that doesn't mean the win over Georgia wasn't still big. No, that, that's a good point. And the Florida game is a really interesting what if and sort of inflection point for the season. Because if Carolina had won that game, on the one hand, you can say, well, yeah, they, they would have had momentum. They wouldn't have been so hung up on it. Maybe they would have been able to carry that positivity over into the Tennessee game. Now they've won three in a row. They probably don't lose to Appalachian State and the season goes a little bit better. But even if the season does crash and burn and South Carolina finishes 5-7 and seven instead of 4-8, and eight, but those wins are over Georgia and Florida, you feel so much better about the season and the state of the program. It's like, yeah, you know, there were some injuries and, you know, didn't have a quarterback and all these things. But ultimately, you know, you, you see the flashes for South Carolina. But the way that I look at the season last year, I, I still feel like, look, they're 4-8 and eight, and two of those games don't count because the Georgia game was a fluke. South Carolina's not a better team than Georgia. They were better on that day. And Jake Fromm had the worst game of his career, probably high school, college, or pro. I don't know if I'll ever have a game that bad ever again. And Javon Kinlaw was absolutely incredible. And Israel Mukwamu was absolutely incredible. And DeCarion Joyner did just enough in injury relief to but that's why you boy play, South Carolina. Right? Well, no, 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 it is. It is. But, like, what, is that, what does that mean? Like, maybe that was the difference in South Carolina keeping Birch and not keeping Birch. Like, I have no idea. And, and the other guys that – you know, put pen to paper at the end of the day to, to stay in South Carolina's 2020 class. Maybe the coaching staff was selling them on the vision of like, hey, look at the upside of this team. Look how far the defense has come and look at the grit and the and the resolve and the will to win in this team and all those things. So maybe it matters in that respect. But again, I look at last season and I say the Georgia game was a fluke. South Carolina winning that doesn't mean that they're better than Georgia and the Charleston Southern game is a fluke. So you have two legit wins and they were over Kentucky and they were over Vanderbilt. And at this point, like, you just need more of those. You need to beat Vanderbilt every year. You don't need to lose to Vanderbilt again until 2070, or if ever. You should beat Kentucky four out of every five years. You should beat Missouri four out of every five years. And then you start to focus on Florida and Georgia. And, you know, you, you beat them every every two years. And then you beat them every other year. And then you, you kind of got to work your way back up to it. And it's weird to talk about going into year five, South Carolina still being so far away and just needing to – consistently beat Kentucky and Missouri, but I, I just feel like that's so important before before you start focusing on Florida and on Georgia. But uh, but yeah, anyway, I don't know. Just fun to talk about, fun to think about as as we head into the season. 
I was a little bit surprised to see six and six because the Vegas over under for South Carolina is right at five. I guess I was surprised to see that South Carolina had, like you mentioned, Wes, as good a chance to beat Missouri right now as they do and any chance at all to beat Tennessee, given what Tennessee just did to South Carolina. And I know that that was in Knoxville last year. Now it's in Columbia. Uh, but anyway, it is talking season. And also with talking season, Wes, you put out a, a fun and interesting poll on your Twitter page yesterday. I, I don't know anything about this. What inspired this and how did the poll go or is it still running? Yeah, it's still running. Um, I don't know what inspired it either. I, I was just watching the little video South Carolina put out uh, about uh, Brian Edwards and, and had a couple of his big catches and just was basically saying, Hey, don't, uh, don't forget Brian Edwards when you're, when you're drafting uh, this week. And it had his two, I guess what you would consider the two best catches of his career. I've had some other people weigh in and say, Hey, what what about this catch? Or what about that catch? But I, the, the two catches I think of when I think of Brian Edwards career is the Tennessee catch where he goes up with one hand right before the half and uh, brings it down just miraculously. And then the, the one-handed catch at Ole Miss where he reaches around the defender, continues to run, uh, basically chucks the defender into the ground, breaks the tackle, and then gets into the end zone for a touchdown. Uh, we've got, let's see, 757 votes and – the Tennessee catch is actually winning uh, 57.6% to 42.4%. So re- relatively close. Let's see. We've had a couple of write-in votes. Let me see. What were they? Uh, somebody wrote in the Florida catch off of the flea flicker at the beginning of the game, mm. um, which maybe didn't quite have the flash as the other two, but he, his point was just that it was um, an unorthodox catch and uh, basically was, was underrated. And as far as the degree of difficulty, and then he, he had a big catch early on in his career. God, what was that? The Vandy game, his first game, or the Mississippi yep. State game, his freshman year? It was Vandy. Yeah, it was the Vandy game. Um, it, it was that game where Elliott Fry kicked the 55 yarder, and I don't remember at what point it was in the game, um, but he did. He did have a really big catch in that one. Um, let's see. Let's see if I can effort the the situation on that one, the down and distance and all that, and come back to it here in I a think second. It was right, a yeah, third and long maybe. You find that, that and West. You said right now the the Tennessee catch is winning, which makes me happy. Although it does surprise me, the Ole Miss catch had a significant lead when I voted yesterday afternoon, and I, I was wondering if people really? were just remembering that. Yeah, must have, there were like two hundred votes, so I guess it was early ish on, and maybe not significantly, but it was by like seven or eight percentage points. And I was wondering if people would vote for the Ole Miss game because South Carolina won that and they lost the Tennessee game. And so it's kind of sour memories. But just in terms of the degree of difficulty, I feel like it's Tennessee, no question. Uh, it's it's one of those catches that's just stupid. And when it happened, you're like, okay, that like flew out of bounds and into the first row. Oh, wait a second. Why is he running down the sideline? Wait, he didn't catch that. No, there's no way he caught that. And then they replay it and you're like, that is just dumb. Was that your vote, Wes, or do you think the Ole Miss catch is better? I, I think the Ole Miss catch was, was more difficult. Um, it was a beautiful throw by Bentley, too. The I mean, I, I'm, I've got it paused right now on the catch. There is a point. I mean, for one, he's being interfered with. Two, I don't even know if he can see this football at the point of the catch mm-hmm. because he's getting interfered with. He reaches around the defender, 
I mean, the ball, the ball is pinned. He's using the defender's stomach basically to haul the ball in. Then the complete disrespect of the, all right, I'm going to just toss you to the ground. You already interfered with me and still couldn't stop the completion. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to throw you on the ground, and I'm going to keep my balance and keep running and get it, you know, get into the end zone. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I will say, though, as cool as these tight views are that the Gamecock media team uses for, you know, to show us this stuff like a, on-the-field view, I don't think you get the complete wow factor of the Tennessee catch unless you see that view from, from a distance. Oh, yeah. Because um, seriously, like I mean, it looks like it's just where, sailing into the stands. Yeah, when, when you see when you see that play, you're, I think the wow factor of the Tennessee one it's just off the charts. Because I, I remember, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't at that game. I was watching it on TV. And I just remember standing up and, and cussing, basically, like, you know, like, did that just happen? Mm-hmm. Um, because, and even slowed, well, all right, there is a view on Twitter where you can see just how far. The thing about the Tennessee catch is how far back he has to reach. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Odell Beckham. Um, his arm is all the way extended behind his head. Okay, I'm. I think I think it's Tennessee. All right, so here's the difference. Here's the watching difference this, to me. Watching this view, I think I think it's Tennessee. And he get, gets a foot down, and scores um, a touchdown. And they had to review it to, well, to call did, a he touchdown. Didn't but score a touchdown. Did they call it a touchdown on the field and review it? I thought they, I thought they didn't call yeah, a touchdown and then gave it to him. No, they they called it a touchdown on the field and then took it away, and then mm. Davian Feaster had to score, I believe. Oh, okay. All right. Well, okay, that, that diminishes it a little bit. But just as a pure catch, you take out the context, you take out the game, you take out whether or not it was a scoring play, which obviously the Ole Miss game was. And for me, I mean, that's it's a it's a catch and run. It's it's great. I don't know. I, I The difference to me is the Ole Miss game, when he makes that catch, it's one that makes you stand up and go, Wow, and you know, maybe scream some expletives or whatever. I probably did that as well. I was not at the old Miss game. I was watching that at home, and, and and you know, same kind of thing. You're like, ah, you just like scream because you know what happened and you know it was cool. But the Tennessee catch for me, I guess, was a little bit of a, a different experience than it was for us. But it's it's one where you don't even say anything because you're just like dumbstruck. And I feel like that is the sign of a greater play. Chris, uh, did you find the down and distance yeah. in that Vanderbilt game, and then also give us your pick for which catch was better? Yes, I got three different things for you, too, because I got one everybody's forgetting. Shocked it hadn't been brought up yet. So that Vanderbilt situation, it was it was two th- about 240 left in the game in that 2016 game. South Carolina was down 10-3 to three on the road against Vandy, and it was third and seven. And he threw up Perry Orth, you know, backed up. He had his heels on the goal line and threw up a ball to Edwards at about the 42 or so that he jumped up and hauled in. But – and it was a really nice catch. I would say that one, for me, not quite as important because South Carolina ended up punting on that possession. Um, now, they did get some good field position. Vandy subsequently punted after an 11-play drive. South Carolina then went down and scored a touchdown. But in terms of significance, maybe not as significant. And for me, not as good as the Tennessee or Ole Miss catch. Now, I will vote between those two. I saw the Ole Miss catch live. I was at that game. I was absolutely dumbfounded. 
that he caught that ball. Like when the ball went up, you know, you saw the tight coverage. The guy was interfering with him. Brian Edwards is in a dead sprint. It's a really well-thrown ball by Jake Bentley right down the sideline. But it's just one of those things you say, okay, I see the Ole Miss guy hanging all over him. Um, that ball is just going to – it's just – it's over his head or it, or it bounced away or whatever. Like I literally, from the angle I had, I saw the defender draped on him and I saw the ball get to near them and I was like, okay, you know, Brian, that ball is just it's, – it's not in play. And then, like, he just keeps running and you realize that he has the ball. The Tennessee – two really different catches because that ball that Helensky threw in Tennessee game was like a rocket almost because of the angle, you know, that he had to go up and get it. It was absolutely incredible. I just thought the old Miss one was better because you're tracking that ball in the sun way down the field. You're on a dead sprint. You have an SEC defensive back literally hanging on you. You pull it down Debatable. with one arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's all remember how bad that Ole Miss defense was that year. Yes, I agree. No, you're right. I mean, that is debatable. Now, they did have Zedrick Woods, who turned in a 4-2-9 at the Combine and, and saved a touchdown in that game for them. He ran down Mon Benson from like 90 yards away because he's so fast. <laughs> other than that, other than that, you're correct, Wes. But, hey, he had a guy draped on him. Okay, it's difficult to, to make that catch. He, he catches it with one hand, pulls it in on a dead sprint, shrugs the guy off, and runs into the end zone. I mean, it was just – that one to me was better. I mean, I know it's very – all that's very debatable, but especially seeing it live, that was incredible. Um, here's another one everybody's forgetting because it was a hugely important catch, and it was a good catch, not as difficult as those other ones. 2017, Louisiana Tech at home – South Carolina uh, yeah. is down. That 50 50 ball to set up the field goal? That's right. 16 mm. seconds left. Jake Bentley throws up a ball, and there are five people around it, and three of them are on the other team. Uh, so the LA Tech defender, I mean, he is literally waiting on it. Like he's backing up, he's waiting on it. Edwards comes from behind him, jumps over him, just steals the ball from him, then has to turn his body because momentum carried him away, and he had to you know, regather it, mm -hmm. the ball bounces. I'm Catch watching it. it right now, and you were doing perfect play-by-play. -play. That was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like like yeah, what so you were I mean, saying synced up exactly with what was happening as I was watching. That was impressive. Well, give yourself credit, too, for syncing it up. But it's um, that catch, I mean, I'd sort of forgotten about that one, and I, I sort of looked back at a. I was watching some of those other Edwards catches and came across that one and, and sort of said, yeah, you know, in terms of degree of difficulty – Still really difficult. Still probably number three by a decent margin. Mm -hmm. But to go up over the guy, steal it, on you know, catch it off the bounce, and in that in that importance of the moment, it, without that play, I mean, South Carolina may lose that game. Gosh, they should have lost Louisiana Tech. That's, that's, may, that's may. so bad. May. <laughs> yeah, probably yeah, not going to lose about, without that catch. Yeah. Well, and and it really and not only you know if it falls incomplete, they've got. I don't know how many seconds at the end of that play, and they're second down, but they're still in a bad, bad, bad spot. You know, really the ball should have been picked and it's game over. That's what should have happened. But he he sort of came at an angle behind the guy and just, you know, jumps and just takes it from him mm -hmm. is really what it boiled down to. And so that one, you know, that one should be up there for me. Was it as difficult as the other ones just in terms of like superhuman 
you know, receiver skills, probably not. But, man, the importance factor and the difficulty together, I, I think it makes it a candidate. Yeah. Oh, that's so I, a good I one think, for sure. I think, guys, there we probably need, like, a top ten catches yeah. on Brian Edwards' career story at this point. But I, I'm looking yeah. a couple of honorable mentions for the top spot that just get forgotten because he has – I think, you know what, the thing about Brian Edwards' career is, you know, even though he has the record, I maybe never put him quite up in that category with Sidney Rice, Alshon Jeffrey, uh, Sterling Sharp, who I never really saw. Um, But then you look back, some of that is because Brian, I believe, had more drops than those guys ever did. Mm. And he played on bad teams. If you really go back – and look at some of the catches he made and, and made on a routine basis. Um, I mean, he has some acrobatic catches. The one at the Outback Bowl against Michigan mm-hmm. where South Carolina had struggled offensively pretty much all day and they get a turnover and take the shot to the middle of the field and he catches it basically in between a couple of defenders and it's twisting as he makes the grab. Um, there's a catch in the corner – against Arkansas uh, the year South Carolina just blew Arkansas out. And uh, this is right at the end of the half where Jake just throws one up to him and it's one-on-one. And he twists somehow, contorts his body, and and makes the grab. Uh, I mean, this guy consistently made big, like, one-on-one catches look look relatively easy, and they're not easy plays at all. So It's I, weird to I, say about a guy that has most of the receiving records in South Carolina, but I feel like he will end up being one of the most historically underappreciated and underrated receivers ever at South Carolina, just because he wasn't on great teams. Yeah. Well, and you, you look, he, um, I mean, the fact South Carolina had him and Debo Samuel at the same time mm-hmm. at, at points when they were both healthy, yeah. uh, that's, that's two pretty good receivers to work with. Oh, man. I, yeah, I was texting Will Helms the other day because he and I were exchanging just some thoughts and highlight videos about Javon Kinlon. It's, it's like it's a shame that South Carolina wasted an unbelievable year from maybe the best defensive lineman in the entire NFL draft and a guy that's going to be probably a multiple-time pro bowler, and he had to waste his talent on a 4-8 and eight team. And you can kind of say the same thing about Brian Edwards, and at least when Debo was there, they won a few more games. But uh, I, I don't want to end the podcast on this because this is like the most negative thing I've said on this podcast today, but y'all are used to my negativity at this point. But like South Carolina's ability to waste like elite pro level talent, especially in the last couple of years, has been extraordinary. Like with Hayden Hurst being a number one or, or, or rather a first round pick and Javon Kinlaw first round pick. And, you know, Brian Edwards is terrific. And Debo Samuel is a guy that broke Jerry Rice's receiving record for rookies in San Francisco. And it's like, man, you have all these guys and six and six and you're. I guess you have the nine win season in there, and then you're six and six again, and then you go four and eight. It's like that is just incredibly, incredibly disappointing. Um, but I don't want to end on that because that's super negative. Um, and, and speaking of Will Helms, and, and speaking of Brian Edwards, if y'all are curious where he's going to get drafted, because I am extremely excited to see him play at the next level. I think he's going to continue to be awesome. And I, I've said from day one. I mean that. I mean not that it was a hot take or anything, but from day one, that first game he played at South Carolina, you could see just his body the way that he could go up and get the football, like everything about him, he was he was going to be a pro receiver, and I'm, I'm really glad that he'll get that opportunity. If you're curious where Brian Edwards is going to end up in tomorrow's draft, we're recording this Wednesday morning, go listen to the latest episode 
of Gamecock Central GM where Will Helms breaks down the quarterback class and the wide receiver class, an unbelievable wide receiver class, and he has some predictions for where Brian Edwards uh, may land as well as some other things and a bunch of other great things on the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. Of course, you got another Carolina podcast, and we mentioned it earlier. If you haven't listened uh, listened to it, go listen to Wes's conversation with Bryce Steele, South Carolina's new linebacker commit in the quarantine talks. Again, it's all free. Just rate, review, subscribe to the Gamecock Central Podcast Network, and you get all that. Uh, Wes, is the poll over, or is it still running for the Brian Edwards catch contest? Uh, by the time they hear this, it will probably be over. Okay. Um, they can they can try it. It might still be gone, but I, I know it's only got a couple hours left as cool. we're recording. Okay, all right. Well, if it's gone, then just start a thread on the Insider Forum and just talk about your favorite Brian Edwards catches. And who knows, maybe that'll get turned into a story. But uh, regardless, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, follow Wes on Twitter at Wes Mitchell GC. Follow Chris on Twitter at GC Chris Clark. I'm at Pearson Fowler. Again, rate, review, subscribe to the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. Read GamecockCentral.com. A little bit of a silver lining. We may have football. We may have more news here soon enough. Um, But if not, we'll do our best to keep you guys informed and entertained. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hey. Yo. Hey. Hey. What's up? Hey. 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 Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's $200 to use on point spreads, Money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050-427 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE. NY or text Hope NY in New York.